Hi, my name is Matt Locke and this is the Everyday Athlete Podcast. The podcast for the everyday athletes around the world who refuse to be average and who want to create a legacy of health, fitness and achievement in every aspect of their life. I'm glad you're here and once again it's time to forge your future. We haven't yet addressed the, the fallacy of the calorie, actually. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> I, I love that I, I, you and I could talk all day. I know we could. <laughs> and I, I would enjoy it very much. But um, to stay true to the uh, the subject we I introduced at the beginning, um, I, I know that uh, certainly within with many many of our audience demographics, for sure that we have a lot of personal trainers and professional coaches. And many of them have, over the last year or two, I guess, added to their arsenal. Uh, in the form of being able to give nutrition advice. And uh, there's one or two companies for, actually from the US which have, who have done an exceptional job of marketing themselves here. And they seem to be doing, you know, it seems to be a very professional program and so on, and that's good. However, a lot of it seems to still focus around calories, 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 calories. Um, and all calories, as we know, are not equal. But uh, I was interested about the fallacy of the calorie that you've, you've well, written a whole book about this. Yeah. yeah. I would love to get your take on it. I'd love to. And, and if folks want, you know, all the data behind what I'm going to say and a much, obviously a much more in-depth discussion, they can pick up a copy of the book because it goes into that, you know, for hundreds of pages, you know, but I think it's a great example. Um, and I love talking about it, how something sort of had one purpose at one time and over time shifted to become something it was never meant to be and then became embedded in the conventional wisdom and, and so um, I'm going to start with a little bit of a history lesson. You know, what is a calorie and where did it come from? And so uh, a calorie, most people immediately think calorie food, it means energy, which it doesn't. Uh, one calorie equals 4.2 joules or kilojoules will be kilocalories. And, and it's actually joules that are a measure of energy. So calorie is actually a measure of heat. And it's the amount of heat required to raise one kilogram of water, one degree Celsius at one atmosphere of pressure. And so immediately that should spark our curiosity and say, well, why are we concerned about food and heat? That doesn't really seem to make a whole lot of sense unless we're eating the Inuit diet and we're stuck in the great white North you know, for, for our lives. And that's because the origin of the calorie has to do with the industrial revolution and the steam engine. And so as a measure that came about when people were looking at different fuels to power a steam engine and increase the efficiency of the engine, or obviously increase the amount of work you could do for a set amount of fuel. And for example, a kilogram of wood is not as good as a kilogram of coal when you're trying to fire a steam engine and have it do work. And, and I think everybody understands that. And when that concept was introduced and people talked about it and wrote scientific papers, that everybody at that time, which we're now talking kind of the late 1700s, mid 1800s, everybody understood that. That made sense. At that time in the mid 1800s, there was an American called Wilbur Atwater who was studying this phenomenon in Germany. Uh, all the great research was on this was going on in Europe at the time. And, and we remember the, the Industrial Revolution really sort of started in the UK with the textile industries and steam engines. And um, he said, well, you know, there's still a lot of work that's being done by animals and people. So if these they are essentially kind of like a steam engine, are there foods that have lots of calories that we can feed them 
so they could do more more work. So, you know, if I can feed them a pound of potatoes, maybe that's better than, you know, a, a pound of beans or, or something like that yeah. in terms of the, the calorie and the energy it'll give them. And, uh, and again, that concept of feeding people or animals more calories to get more work out of them, that made sense to everybody at the time. So it was a logical kind of conversation. And so Atwater went about figuring this out. And the way one does that is to use something called a bomb calorimeter, which is kind of exactly what it sounds like. <laughs> so I take that potato and I weigh out how much it is, and then I burn it to hell. I incinerate it. So there's literally, literally nothing left but ash. And then I measure how much in terms of temperature the water went up, how much heat was giving off, giving off. And that's its caloric value. Now, um, and I know that a lot of this was filmed down under, unless you are Sauron the Great from Lord of the Rings, no one, no human being processes food like that. So in terms of its applicability to how humans metabolize and use food, you could see it has no relevance. And not only that, but as most things in, in the story of humanity, we got lazy. So instead of testing every food, we just said, you know, most fats are about nine kcal per gram. Most carbs are about four. So we'll just kind of put them together. We'll just look at, you know, how many grams of carbs and proteins and fats, et cetera. And then we can kind of guesstimate, you know, how much is in an apple, um, you know, et cetera. And so that's where the concept of calorie and how it relates to food comes from. And once you understand that, and once you, you know, talk about the things that we've talked about in terms of the gut microbiome and our, and our cells, we could see that in terms of understanding the kind of nutrition, that makes no sense. And when we talk about restricting calories or adding calories, obviously the quality of that, of where that calorie comes from is what's really important. Mm. So a, you know, 50 calories from a candy bar is not the same as 50 calories from an apple. That's that's common sense. And yet, when we talk about health strictly in terms of calories, inadvertently between the lines, that what, that's what we're saying. And when we look then at dietary approaches that really want to drop your calories and say, you know, for example, which is another discussion because this turns out to be really bad for your gut microbiome and give you diabetes and obesity. But when we look at zero calorie sweeteners and we say, hey, instead of having a sugar-sweetened beverage, just drink this zero-calorie artificially sweetened beverage because it's healthier, right? It's zero calories. It's not going to affect you in that sense. And that turns out, you know, to be a big lie. And, And if we were to follow that logic, really everything that was artificial that had was made and had minimal calories, that would be the best diet for us. And yet what you and I have just talked about is how that adulteration, that processing is actually the opposite. And the story, and actually I remember this because some of the earliest papers, and this goes way back to when I was a cardiology fellow, so decades ago, (laughs) but some of the first papers about this, I remember actually came out from Australia where they looked at, at, and this at that time they were looking at women who drank zero calorie artificially sweetened beverages, women who didn't drink any kind of sweetened beverage, and women who drank sugar-sweetened beverages. And you'd expect, based on the, the rationale for a calorie, that someone who drank the zero-calorie artificially sweetened beverages should be just like somebody who didn't drink 
you know, uh, sweetened beverages at all. Mm. And that's not true. They had incredibly high rates of obesity that that approach those of drinking sugar. The same with uh, diabetes. And when they had heart attacks, their complication rate was similar in some some studies, worse than women who drank sugar-sweetened beverages. And that really didn't even make sense. And I remember because as a cardiology fellow, I presented that paper at our at our journal club. And so I had to wait, you know, many decades, I'm not going to say how many, but many, until uh, this result was actually published only um, about, I'd say about three or four years ago in uh, Nature magazine, where they recreated the human gut microbiome in a mouse, and they fed them those same artificial sweeteners. And what they found out is that it affected the gut microbiome and made this pro-inflammatory environment exist in our gut. And that inflammation is what's associated with diabetes. And then they got uh, they got obese, and then they got diabetes, et cetera. So it set that whole chain. You know, that was the gasoline that set that whole chain on fire. So yeah, zero calorie artificial sweeteners don't impact human cells, but they destroy your gut bacteria. And we have to again shift our perspective from thinking of us as something in isolation to understanding ourselves and our body as an ecosystem. And so, you know, if you take your insides and make it more like Fukushima than the great outback, you're going to have the, the correlative results. Yeah, sure. No, it's fascinating. Thank you. Out of interest, I mean, I've, it's probably a big question, but what is it about those artificial sweeteners, for example, that destroys the gut microbiome? So we don't know exactly because what we see is is that there's a shift. And so we're an ecosystem. So like in any ecosystem, you know, if you pollute it, certain things die out and certain things that thrive in that type of environment will then manifest. So it's never totally, you know, a wasteland, that kind of old saying, nature abhors a vacuum. Something will come to dwell in there. And, And it's kind of how do you want to tend that garden? You know, what are you using, you know, for your inner garden? And so that's an active, an area of active investigation because it turns out, and, and I speak, you know, about the gut microbiome and, and I want to kind of put a footnote on that because yes, we know, and we've learned a lot about the bacteria, but a gut microbiome will also encompass, you know, there's a lot of viruses in there that we know nothing about and what they're doing. Other one-celled organisms, yeast, fungi that exist commensally with us. So when we're talking about the bacteria, we're just kind of getting the understanding that that tip of that iceberg. And then it's not only the composition of the bacteria, but we also then have to look at that, the metabolites, because different strains of bacteria produce different products. Mm. And those different products, it turns out, actually can control our moods. They tell us to stop eating. They can tell us when we're hungry. They can turn our genes on and off to manufacture things like deuteric acid which may be protective against colon cancer. So it's it's a fascinating area of study uh, that hopefully over the next decade, we'll learn a lot more. Great question. Um, and that's a long, very politically adept way of saying, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> sure thing. So, uh, I mean, I, I guess if we try and, so what's the starting point for the lay person? I mean, for sure, eating a whole food diet as close to the ground as possible, trying to I ideally eliminate or at least reduce the amount of processed food that's being consumed. But when it comes to gut microbiome, uh, what's the starting point there for the layperson? And, you know, lots of our audience are really interested in their health. 
They really are interesting. A lot of them are doing a great job already. Not all, but some are doing a great job already with the information that's available and whilst being bombarded. It's like having a fire hose turned onto your forehead, frankly. Um, it's, <laughs> you know, it's getting bombarded with information. And I guess we're all, yeah, depending on what our social media feed presents to us as well, <laughs> um, in terms of supporting our own beliefs and the like and, and how we've been, you know, what we've learned as we've grown up. But when it comes to gut microbiome, what, what would be a really sensible starting point for anyone who's interested to dig a bit deeper with their own, so, their own self-interest and maybe that of their family and friends? So I, I think maybe three simple steps to start. And, and the first is whenever you are choosing an ingredient or going to order a food, whether it be at a restaurant or you're getting it at the supermarket or having it delivered by the internet, ask yourself three questions. How was it bred? So was this harvested wild from the ocean? Was it farmed? And, you know, what are the details of, you know, if it was farmed? What was it fed? So is this something that was raised organically? Is this something that was raised conventionally? Lots of fertilizers, lots of pesticides, potentially. And then finally, you know, where was it led? So once it was harvested, you know, what kind of processing went, went on? There's a heck of a lot of a difference between a wild, you know, harvested salmon filet and a fried square chunk of breaded fish, you know, filet that you get through the drive-thru. And yet when we look at dietary questionnaires, they're asking you if you ate fish this week. And, and that's one of the reasons you ask why things fail, you know, garbage in, garbage out. If we don't acquire our data with an eye towards the important information, we'll never find it. So that's, that's one thing. Uh, the second thing in terms of the gut microbiome specifically is uh, what we're seeing is naturally fermented foods are great sources of probiotics and prebiotics because our fermented foods, um, there are some fermented meats. Uh, there's pickled um, meat vegetables from India. Uh, salamis are naturally fermented, you know, uh, sausages uh, out of like Italy and, and the Mediterranean. But by and far away, the largest group of our fermented products are fermented uh, plant products, kimchi, sauerkrauts, you know, those types of things. And when we eat those, we're eating bacteria that are, are good for us, and we know that. And then we're also eating things called prebiotics, which is, you know, Matt, I'm an old guy, so I can remember on the back of, you know, Reader's Digest and comic, they'd have, you could order, you know, a set of sea monkeys. And, you know, you, we put these things in water and you'd have, they were little brine shrimp and you'd swim around and do stuff and you had sea monkeys. But then you had to order sea monkey food because you got to feed your sea monkeys. <laughs> and so when we eat these little wee beasties and probiotics and people pay a lot for these pills, you got to feed them. And so what we see is that the probiotics or the food for the gut microbiome that correlates to the health of the microbiome are really uh, what we get again in fermented foods. And then what's called non-digestible oligosaccharides. And, and those are things that are primarily found in plant products. Interestingly, they are also produced in human breast milk. And it is the third, you know, sort of by volume, if you will, the third uh, most abundant constituent in human breast milk. And what's interesting is that the infant just like us, we can't digest those oligosaccharides. They're called HMOs, human milk oligosaccharides. So all they actually do in the newborn is select out for a, a particular strain of bacteria called Bifidiobacter bacterium 
infantis, uh, which then once that grows in the newborn's colon, in, in the newborn's gut, turns on certain immune system genes and starts cycling and lights up the baby's immune system. And so um, that gives you an idea, you know, how complex, it blows my mind that nature wired human mothers to produce something that babies can't digest, but allows them to serve as the Petri dish to grow this one strain of bacteria that then will turn on their immune system genes. And if we just take a moment and and let that sink in, that gives you an idea of, of why, you know, in culinary medicine, I often harp on the term, we're not people, we're ecosystems. We are not in any way, shape, or form designed to function independently of this good planet. And, and I think, you know, the sooner we recognize that and, and reestablish that perspective in our relationship with food, the better off we're going to be in terms of both mental health and physical health. Yeah, absolutely. Like you, I find it mind-blowing. Um, and I'm conscious we're scratching the surface, and I appreciate that you're making it understandable for the layperson. I point it myself when I say that. Um, certainly one of, the, one of the final topics for today's chat, at least, I hadn't planned to talk about this, but it's, it's relevant because there are more and more companies offering all sorts of DNA profiling these days that purport to then give you real data about you, specifically you, and any even down to food types that you may that may serve you better than others for example what, what are your thoughts around those and i'm sorry i put you on the spot because we, we didn't oh that's okay chat about it. but um yeah no. if you're happy to share i mean what, what are your thoughts around those i mean without going into a brand specific generally worthwhile or is it too early for them to be truly valuable and obviously it's putting all sorts of privacy concerns that some people have aside uh <laughs> but just from a if I send a sample into one of these companies and I get my report back, is that can that be valuable data? And, and that's a great question. That's actually one of the things we teach in our introduction co- uh, uh, okay. course is to introduce people to that. It's called nutrigenomics, and it's one of the sort of omics of study, and and it is useful to a degree. So uh, if you send it to like ancestry.com or twenty three, you're not you'll get some information, but you're not going to get that kind of detailed information. And so in nutrigenomics, they're looking at your specific genetic profile because we're all slightly different and we have sort of one point mutations that are called uh, single nucleotide polymorphisms or SNPs. And they're just the things that, you know, sort of make us us and they can make us more responsive to certain food types, less responsive to others, et cetera. And so unfortunately right now, getting those types of profiles is a little bit expensive and then you, you need to have uh, someone in terms of uh, dietary and nutrition yeah. background who is competent to interpret that for you and say, okay, it looks like this diet is good for you. But I'll give you a, a good example. And um, I, this is not my area of expertise, although I'm familiar with it. So uh, I actually have a guest lecturer in, in this topic for a course, and she's one of the world's experts. And she gave a, a, an example that just kind of blew my mind. So in general, everybody would agree, the more plants you eat, the healthier you are. And, and I think that that's, you know, pretty, pretty standard fare, unless you have a certain SNP or certain gene mutation. And if you had that, and you said, you know what, I'm not eating anything from animals anymore, I'm going to go on a, a, a vegan diet. Well, there's a certain mutation that some people have that prevents them from taking the carotene that comes from plants and converting it to vitamin A. 
We can also get vitamin A as the Eskimos do from eating certain types of animal products as well. So if somebody has that uh, example, that type of, of SNP or that mutation, if they were then to go on a vegan diet thinking they were going to be healthy, they would actually end up suffering from vitamin A deficiency, mm. even though they could eat carrots till they were blue in the face. <laughs> so when you have somebody to, to look at those, which, and, and that's not a, a terribly common mutation I want to add. So don't everybody panic, but it does kind of give you a good example and kind of highlight the individuality and the need to have a specialist go through those foods and develop a food plan for you. Now, having said all that, it kind of goes back to the topic we covered before, because that doesn't address at all the bacteria. And there is, it appears that our gut microbiomes as human beings are like our fingerprints. Even two kids growing up in the same house, eating exactly the same meals may have at most about 10, 15% of commonality in the overlap of the composition of their gut microbiome. So gut microbiomes are very individual. And they're dependent on our environment and who we are and our genetics and all these other things. And as we've just talked about, you know, extensively, that has a huge impact in our health as well. So when we take all those things together, that is called metabolomics, uh, which is kind of the study of all these things. And, and we, we're not quite there yet. So I think if somebody, you know, is a, is a very serious athlete, very, or, or has some, you know, real nutritional or dietary issues, that going down that path can be very beneficial. If you get qualified people to help you, don't just order the test and try to figure it out yourself. Uh, don't just buy some stuff that they sell you based on their recommendations. You need an independent person to interpret that. It can be valuable. I think for the average person, um, you know, certainly for me, looking at the data at this point, I don't, I don't think it would be necessarily useful for me. Sure. Yeah. It no. may be in the future, and it may be a whole a whole arm of of medical therapeutics in the future, but we're just just not there yet. Yeah. Sure. Which I think was the underlying question. I, I, I mean, my hope is that this is the future, uh, a part of the future, yeah. because it could be hugely valuable. But yes, um, the marketing would suggest we're there now, and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it always does, doesn't it? Yeah. As long as you have the money, we got the product. <laughs> That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Um, uh, Dr. Mike, I am conscious of time and eternally grateful for how generous you've been with oh, yours. My pleasure. We talked about the introduction to culinary medicine program that's available online. Where would someone go to find out more about that if that was of interest to them? Um, if they go to www.chefdrmike.com, that's chefdrmike.com. That's kind of a central place. They can follow me on social media from there. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, they can read more about me. They can look at our online course. Uh, it explains it in detail. Uh, it, you can actually download the syllabus and see exactly what you're getting yourself into, um, which hopefully is a lot of enjoyment. And uh, they can actually, there's a link to the university where they can sign up for the course if, they, if they'd like to. Sure, lovely. Thank you. And I'll certainly put all of the... Uh those details in the show notes uh, out of interest how long for the what's the average duration it's taking for people to work their way successfully through the program you know working a little bit each day i would give myself about three months so it's it's introduction but it's not one of these you know pay it you give me a lot of money and i'm going to give you a certificate at the end of the weekend uh we really go through a lot of data um again my goal here is to empower people with knowledge so, you know, you'll definitely get your money's worth. That's for sure. You, there's 18 
different topics divided into three segments, looking at kind of what we talk about, which is what is culinary medicine? Then looking at some of the other things we didn't touch on too much today, but are very important, which is what are the non-ingredient influences in our, our dietary choices? And then finally, walking through each kind of ingredient category, vegetables, you know, fish, herbs and spices, things like that, and some quizzes and things along the way. So, um, you know, give yourself time and, um, you know, it's about enjoying it as you go through and it's entirely at your own pace. Absolutely. No, thank you. And uh, as you quite rightly said, uh, we for sure have a second sitting in us in the future. <laughs> so, so much to talk about. But uh, for today and for now, thank you very much for your time and for sharing your knowledge with us. And um, until next time. Yes, a uh, pleasure, Matt. Thanks, mate. Pleasure as always. Cheers. Well, there you have it. Thanks very much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this, please go ahead and leave a review. It helps more than you know. And if you think that one of your training buddies would also enjoy this, go ahead and share it with them right now. Thank you once again. And until next time, train smart and train safe.